Father, we need uh, the eyes of our hearts uh, to have your understanding. We need your wisdom, Lord, because uh, if we were left to ourselves, we would not know what to do. We stand before you, help us and work So open the eyes of our heart, open our minds to receive your word, open our hearts, and increase our affections for you, because we encounter you in your word. We pray for us. Well, this is, uh, this is the last week that we are going to be looking at uh, this book of James, which we've spent in for really the better part of, of this last month. Uh, the book of James is a powerful book in the New Testament. It was a letter, uh, that is, as we saw before, it was a letter that was written by uh, James, who was Jesus' half-brother, who didn't believe what his older brother said, he, who he said he was, and what he said uh, as, as Savior, until he witnessed the death and resurrection of Christ, and then he was converted to become one of the most influential leaders in the first century church. And he writes his book to uh, a church in Jerusalem, a church of Christ followers who were facing all sorts of difficulties. They were dealing with uh, internal struggles. There was lots of division and, and kind of backbiting and nastiness that was happening within the church. But there were also some serious external pressures that the church was facing too. They were being severely persecuted. They were being impoverished because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's to these people who were facing these pressures that James writes this very, very powerful letter about what it means to have true faith in Jesus Christ. And some people, when they read the book of James, have had a hard time. They sometimes struggle with it because they look at the book of James and they think that, that James might be saying something that doesn't seem to square with the rest of the scripture. See, James is really passionate about showing how our behavior and about how our deeds is connected to our faith. Some people have a hard time because they misinterpret James. They think James is saying that our deeds, our good works, our, our best efforts are the things that make us right before God. When the truth of the gospel tells us that we have nothing to offer God. We have no deeds that can merit God's favor on our behalf. There's nothing that we can do to earn His favor on our behalf that His grace comes to us purely at His goodness. Not because of anything that we've done. Now I believe that James would actually agree with that. But his, his intent is different than what we see in some other books of the New Testament. His intent is to show us the demonstration of that faith. His intent is to show us that if we have really experienced God's grace, if we've really experienced true faith, then it will naturally transfer into a changed life. It will naturally transfer into changed behavior. Our deeds are not the cause of our faith, but they have to be the effect of our faith. And if there are no deeds, if there's nothing that's changed, if there's nothing that's changed in our behavior, then we have to question, have we really experienced God's grace? Have we experienced true faith? And as we've walked with James to this book, we, James has shown us that true faith affects how we speak. It affects how we use the tongue. We've seen how uh, true faith affects how we think about the poor and the oppressed and the needy in our midst. We've seen uh, James shows us that true faith really affects even the way we consider our own 
Sadly, if we're honest with ourselves and we, and we look at our world, we'll know that 
common fruit that we see in our world. Earthly wisdom is really all around us. It's what defines the air that we breathe. It's what defines the culture in which we live in. And because it is so prevalent, and because it is so prominent in our world, it seems at times to be the right thing to do. But Proverbs tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. When, when my wife and I got married, I, I, I paid for our honeymoon. Because I was paying for the honeymoon, I chose a very cheap accommodation. <laughs> we, uh, we decided to go on a cruise, and uh, I had never been on a cruise before, so when I was booking the cruise, I, 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 I did my practical brain, I suppose. I said, well, what are the cheapest rooms on, on this ship? So we, we, we got some of the cheapest rooms that were on the ship. And uh, it was really low in the bottom of the ship. So much so that we actually did have a portable. We weren't completely underwater. But the waterline kind of came right up to our portable. That's how low that we were in the ship. Which was really no big deal by and large for, for most part of our movement. But, but one night, we, we learned that there was a hurricane that was off the coast of North Carolina. And it wasn't really going to affect us a whole lot. But it might make the water a little choppier. And we thought, no big deal. But then we woke up in the middle of the night, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, and the ship, Captain, in his infinite wisdom, had chosen to turn off the destabilizers in the ship. Now, I didn't know ships like this had stabilizers, but apparently they do. And when he turned off those destabilizers, and we were in the bottom of this ship, on the bottom row, we felt every toss of every wave that hit the ship. And in some sense, we panicked a little bit, thinking this ship was going to go down. And we went out, you know, went out for our room at 3 o'clock, we found somebody who this is normal, and they said, yeah, we turned these same wires off. But for whatever reason, we felt helpless at that moment, because we felt like we were, we were falling victim to whatever the ocean might have for us in that moment. Well, what made me think about that is some of James' words about wisdom that he speaks to. Because what he says here in chapter 1 is that earthly wisdom is often like a wave that is caught in a big storm. It's tossed about, it's directionless, and it's helpless to kind of fix its own situation. James says earthly wisdom is double-minded and unstable. And often, when we're defined by earthly wisdom, we feel helpless to handle the waves that life brings our way. Jesus describes this earthly wisdom in Matthew 7 like a man who builds his house on sand. And in both situations, Jesus' illustration and Christ's illustration, the storms of life come and they wreck and they ruin a life that is built on earthly wisdom. But James goes on to talk a little bit more, not just about the negatives of earthly wisdom, but he speaks about the beauty of this wisdom that is from above. And he talks about this in chapter 4. He moves on to, to kind of nuance his comparison. And by nuancing, he talks about this thing called, uh, what, what some commentators would call the sin of arrogant presumption that often characterizes someone whose life is built on earthly wisdom. You see, James, in his day when he wrote this book, was dealing with, in his culture, all these kind of wealthy merchants. They were, they were wealthy businessmen, they were wealthy dealers in the 
plans and their business strategies and all the money that they were going to make. They go throughout town saying, I'm going to go to such and such location and I'm going to make a ton of money there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to build my portfolio over here. They made all these grand plans about how they were going to succeed in life. And James has some really powerful words to say to them. We might, we might look at what James says is James against making plans. But he's not against making plans whatsoever. But what he's trying to confront is the hubris that often is behind those plans. The arrogant presumption that we often have behind our best laid plans in life. Because James says that wisdom that is from above, wisdom that is from above accepts and lives in light of a few very practical things about the nature of life itself that we often tend to forget in our arrogant presumption. And the first is very simple. James wants us to see that we as human beings, in the grand scheme of things, are actually very small, and our lives are very brief. James says in chapter 4, verses 14, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. One of my favorite things to listen to on the radio is, is, is a, a guy named uh, Garrison Keeler. But he really is, I think, a professional storyteller. He probably does other things, but uh, if you never find him on the radio, he does this thing called a Prairie Hill Companion. And he just tells stories about this. And he is one of those guys that, you know, you just, the words just kind of drip beautifully out of his mouth. And you start listening to him, you just can't turn the radio station away because you're riveted by these stories that seem so inconsequential. You just can't turn the radio off. Uh, he often tells stories about the Midwest and about Eastern Minnesota. And he tells a story about uh, the Midwest and how great it is in the Midwest and how the family values are wonderful in the Midwest and all that sort of stuff. And this past month in National Geographic, he actually wrote uh, a story about his home. He wrote a story about Minnesota. And he wrote this in the article. I thought this was a great quote. He said, Now and then it's good to drive out west of Minneapolis and look around see where you are. On the prairie, I stand by my car on a gravel road that goes west to the end of the world. It's sheer grandeur, vast, silent, like the mind of God, and I'm an insect in the vehicle. You know, the scripture uses images like this very often to describe the nature of our lives. James calls it, James calls it, calls, calls it a mist or a vapor for a little while and is gone. Job describes our lives like a moth-eaten garment. Moses describes our lives like grass that is here today and gone the next day. David in Psalm 103 and Isaiah 40 both pick up on this image of our lives like grass. We are small. You know, if we were to take, if we were to take the span of, imagine this for a minute, if we were to take the span of and, and track it from the end of this room to the front. We're going to track all of human history from the end of this room to the very front of this room. The, real, the reality is our lives would be just a blip on that timeline. And that blip moves very fast. Now, I know I'm going to sound old when I say this, 
But I can remember vividly holding my son, my oldest son, the first time when he was born. And it's as if I blinked and he is now set. We were talking, when I, when I told you before, our family went to Fan Fest the other day. And it was the 60th anniversary of the Baltimore Orioles. And afterwards, uh, my son said, Dad, do you, think, do you think you'll be alive to see 100 years for the Orioles? And I said, gosh, well, I hope so, son. And I said, if I'm, if I'm old and the Orioles turn 100, will you still take me to Fan Fest? And he said, yeah, I'll take my, my kids and I'll take you with me. And I had this, I was thanking son. And I had this strange sensation that it's just going to be a blink and we're going to be in one another. And that is the nature of our lives, isn't it? They go by so fast. It's as if they go by in just a blink. You know, the truth is my great-grandparents came over from Ireland in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And I've seen pictures of them and uh, I've, I've heard little stories about them. But by and large, my great-grandparents don't really affect my life day in and day out. Uh, there are photographs, there are a couple of stories, but they don't have much impact on my life whatsoever, especially at this moment. And the reality is, in a hundred years, that will be us. We might be a photograph, we might be a name in the genealogy, but our lives in some ways won't matter all that much to our great-great-grandchildren. You see, the arrogant presumption of earthly wisdom does not recognize this. It does not live in light of this. The, early, the earthly wisdom that abounds in our world, the arrogant presumption that abounds in our world, makes us feel like we're invincible. It makes us feel like we are going to live forever and that we consider ourselves the most important thing in all of human history. But James says, Wisdom is from above, has an accurate perspective on the realities of our life, the brevity of our life, and the frailty of our life. But James wants us to take it even a step further, in that he reminds us that our lives, fundamentally, are unpredictable. They are unpredictable. Many pastors, if you run into them, will tell you that they probably have the hardest job on the planet. And we like to think that. But I actually think the people that have the hardest job on the planet are weathermen, meteorologists, that have to predict the weather day in and day out. We were watching the, the weather the other day, and I think it was, it was Monday or Tuesday or something like that. They were all very confident that we were not going to get any snow in Baltimore City. We wake up the next morning, oh, there's an inch and a half on the ground here in the city. And I felt bad for the weathermen at that point because everywhere you go, yeah, those weathermen don't know what they're doing. But really, they are tasked with predicting what often is impossible to predict. I really feel bad for them sometimes. Jesus says that we would be wise to approach life with a certain measure of humility, understanding that life, like the weather, is often very unpredictable by its nature. You know, we go about our lives each day having a certain measure of expectations, and we manage those expectations pretty well. But all of us know that the unpredictability of life often intrudes and disrupts our peace. I learned this just this week of a friend who uh, lives in Pennsylvania, he's a, he's a contractor, 
lies right behind it. But wisdom recognizes that this life is not all that there is. But James clearly expresses that this earthly wisdom is the common wisdom. It is the wisdom that defines this world, but it doesn't ultimately provide us the peace that we so deeply desire in our innermost being. And it points us to a need for a heavenly wisdom. A heavenly wisdom that is able to provide for us peace in the midst of the storm. Peace in the midst of the unpredictability of life. Stability in the midst of the waves that seem to be crashing into our lives all the time. Because James says, those storms will never be easy. But he says, there is peace available. There is stability available in the middle of the storms of life if we grasp on to this thing called wisdom that is from above. Ultimately, what James is doing is he's pointing us to Christ, who not only demonstrated wisdom in his life, but he becomes the very source of wisdom for you and I as well. See, when we think about this wisdom, our tendency is to think this wisdom from above is just a bunch of tenets, or just a bunch of kind of proverbs that we have to live our lives by. If we just kind of grasp those proverbs and those tenets, then everything will be okay. What the gospel tells us is wisdom from above is not just tenets or commandments to follow. Wisdom from above is actually a person. He's a person to follow. The scriptures tell us that Jesus himself is the embodiment of that wisdom that is from above. His life was characterized by the peace and the gentleness and the purity and mercy that is the fruit of wisdom defined from above. Often Jesus was living by that wisdom and everybody else around him was living by earthly wisdom. And often those that were around Jesus had a very hard time understanding why he did the things that he did. How he could consistently set aside jealousy. How he could consistently set aside presumption. How he could consistently set aside selfish ambition. They had a hard time understanding his selflessness during his arrest, during his beating, and his eventual execution. They wanted to cry out, Jesus, save yourselves. But of course the gospel tells us that he didn't. He was defined by a heavenly wisdom. A wisdom that said he needed to give his life away so that you and I can experience grace and mercy and life eternal. What is remarkable is that he did all that for you and for me. We who are small, we who are insects, we who are mists and vapors and grass that's here today and gone tomorrow, He did this for you and I. People who are a bundle of insecurities, a bundle of sin, a bundle of brokenness, He did it for you and I. That's why the psalmist remarks, what is man that you are mindful of Him? Yet He loved us to such a degree demonstrated that love for us by his sacrifice on the cross. And once we experience him, once we experience his cleansing gift, it says that the scriptures rejoice over or that God himself rejoices over us with singing and with dancing. 
You see, friends, Jesus came not just to demonstrate wisdom, or a life that is defined by wisdom that is from above. He came to become the source of wisdom for us. And that is only made possible by his death and resurrection on our behalf. So when you come to James' thoughts on wisdom, there are two questions that James, I think, wants us to ask of ourselves. Two questions that we can't really escape when we approach James in this whole discussion of wisdom and this whole discussion of true faith. The first is which wisdom are you defined by? Are you defined by an earthly wisdom? A wisdom that, is, that has the fruit of selfish ambition and jealousy and all these negative things. Are you like that ship that is tossed by the waves, desperately yearning for peace and stability in life? Or are you defined by wisdom that is from above? Wisdom that is characterized by grace and mercy and peace in the midst of all the storms of life. See, James brings us to this point where he wants us to ask desperately, how do we get that wisdom that is from above? How do we get that perspective on our lives? How do we set aside all the arrogant presumption that so characterizes our life? How do we get this wisdom? And he answers it very clearly in chapter 1. All we need to do is simply ask. It says in chapter 1, verse 5, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach it will be given to him. We simply need to ask. But what we'll find is that when we ask, he doesn't just give us wisdom, but he gives us himself. He gives us himself. That's why Victor Hugo said, wisdom is not a bunch of things, it's not a bunch of things that we need to figure out in order to make life work. It's not some fancy formula. Wisdom is a sacred community. Community. Wisdom is only found in a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, the, the advice that James gives us, the commands he gives us, are just as real for us today as they were for his readers. And that is that we ought to stop defining our lives by earthly wisdom that is so common and instead embrace the wisdom that is from above. And when we do that, when we set aside the earthly wisdom, when we embrace that wisdom that is from above, we'll discover that we're not embracing some formula, we're not embracing some sort of tent, but we're actually embracing Christ himself. 